Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Mehdi Hassan wants to make a great debater out of you. The host of MSNBC's The Mehdi Hassan Show has made a career of challenging presidents and prime ministers in tough interviews where he's clearly done his homework. To Hassan, a good faith debate is not only the lifeblood of democracy, but it's also fun. We'll hear his tips for persuading and captivating an audience using pathos or humor effectively, and how to handle people who believe in alternative facts. Hassan's new book is Win Every Argument. He joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You may already be a fan of Mehdi Hassan's hard-hitting interview style, but just to give you a sense of it, here he is in 2019 on his Al Jazeera show asking Eric Prince why he didn't tell Congress about a 2016 meeting at Trump Tower. How come you didn't mention that meeting to Congress, given it's so relevant to their investigation? Uh, I did. As part of the part of the investigations, I certainly uh, disclosed any uh, any meetings. The very very not few the, I had not in the congressional testimony you gave to the House. We went through it. You didn't mention anything about August 2016 meeting in Trump Tower. I they did. specifically asked you what context you have, and you didn't answer that. Uh, I don't believe I was asked that question. You were asked whether any communica- formal communications or contact with the campaign. You said apart from writing papers, putting up yard signs. No, that's what you said. I've got the transcript of the conversation here. Sure. I mean, I might have been, uh, I, I think I was at Trump headquarters or the campaign headquarters. Trump maybe, Town, uh, August 3rd, 2016. You, possible. an Israeli dude, a back channel to the Emiratis and the Saudis, Don Jr., Stephen Miller. We're there to talk about Iran policy. Are you there to talk about Iran policy? Mm-hmm. Don't you think that's something important to disclose to the House Intelligence Committee while you're under oath? I did. You didn't. We just went through the testimony. There's no mention <laughs> of the Trump Tower meeting in August 2016. Why not? I don't know if they got the transcript wrong. Hassan was able to catch Prince, the founder of the private military company Blackwater, in a lie. A useful skill when dealing with powerful people who like to lie. And Hassan, who now hosts the Mehdi Hassan Show on MSNBC and Peacock, wants to share his skills and powers of persuasion with you in a new book called Win Every Argument. Welcome to Forum, Mehdi. Thanks so much for having me on. Have you always been argumentative? Where did your love of arguing come from? Um, I have always been argumentative. (laughs) Um, As long as I can remember, I think people who know me would say, when I told people I was writing this book, the number of people who said, yes, exactly, this is the book you were meant to write. 
Um, and I don't, some of them said it in a good way, some of them not in a good way. Um, I, say in the, I say in the introduction to the book that I, I grew up in a very disputatious household. Uh, the Hassan family likes rhetorical combat. Uh, my father was always challenging my sister and I. Um, and it's something that I both relished, enjoyed and got good at at school and college and then turned into a career. And now, luckily, I get paid to kind of argue for a living. Um, but the point of the book is to say, look, even if you weren't raised in that household and you, even if you don't think you were born to argue, uh, there are skills that we can all pick up and learn over life to improve our ability to communicate, persuade, speak in public, which Americans fear doing, according to all the polls. Yeah, I love that you have such faith in all of us that we can become so much better at this. You say you can help people of all backgrounds and abilities to become champions of debate and masters of rhetoric. Um, but give us the value proposition. What is the value that you see in disagreement? So a couple of things. Number one, big picture. You, I genuinely believe you can't have a functioning democracy or a functioning free press or a public square unless you are willing to engage in good faith debate, discussion, argument, disagreement. And I use the words good faith advisedly. Yeah. Um, yes. Sorry, I was going to say, you, democracy ceases to function if you're unable to have public debates uh, in good faith. And then separately, you mentioned the kind of, you know, what is the value that the process itself I believe has value in, in the search for the truth. I know it sounds cliched, but some of us, if you're trying to find the truth, you need to be able to look at your, all of the options. You need to know both sides of the argument or many sides of the argument. And I believe there is an intrinsic value simply to the process of argumentation and debate. And I, I quote the French essayist in the book, the 18th century, sorry, 19th century essay, Joseph Joubert, who said, I would rather debate an issue without settling it than to settle an issue without debating and I love how you give an example in your introduction about how the stakes can be really high. You basically give this example of um, uh, someone who needs to persuade the Athenian assembly of ancient Greece to spare the lives of a rebelling city. So there you actually have like tens of thousands of lives on the yeah. line based on the performance that you do in your debate. Um, but I got to tell you, that story actually reminded me uh, about the conversations that I was hearing people having about lives and people's health and safety on an everyday level during the pandemic, and especially on our shows about COVID and the COVID vaccines, and how listeners would often ask us how to convince family members captured by disinformation or otherwise um, to get the vaccine to protect themselves and other people. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about strategies you might use to convince somebody just on an individual level, yes. someone maybe you are close with of that. So it's a great question. And the book deals with different scenarios because no argument, no debate, no two arguments or two debates are the same. You might be arguing in a high school debate competition. You might be arguing in a university auditorium. You might be arguing in a presidential debate on live TV, or you might just be arguing with your neighbor over the fence or your uncle at the Thanksgiving table. And there may be no audience whatsoever. As you say, it may be a one-on-one -on -one good faith conversation with someone you care about and you're trying to get through to And And the vaccines and COVID is a good example because that did tear apart a lot of families and friends and communities um one thing there's no there's no easy answer right answer or silver bullet especially in an age of disinformation where whatever argument you give will, might be drowned out by whatever your friend or uncle or con colleagues 
social media page says, or evening cable diet does. But there are some tips in the book that I talk about. For example, there's an entire chapter on listening, which people don't realize is so crucial to speaking and debating. Mm -hmm. And I say this as someone who's not a great listener myself. I'm not a naturally good listener. My <laughs> wife laughed when I said I'm writing a chapter on listening and said, you're writing a chapter on <laughs> listening? And I'm like, yeah, I know, but I have to. It's, it's a vital skill because often when we're having a debate or conversation or argument, we're waiting for our turn to speak. We're not actually listening to what the other person is saying. And a lot of what you have to do to be persuasive is to engage with the other person, show empathy, understand their feeling. So much of what we do in the realm of debate and argument and discussion is not about facts and figures. It's not about whether you have the best peer-reviewed research for this or that vaccine or how many scientists you can quote. It's about making an appeal to someone's emotions, their identities, their instincts, their gut, the emotional appeal, what Aristotle called pathos. And that's something you can do by showing empathy, by engaging with that person, by finding common ground. Um, you know, if there is a person you care about in your family who's not taking the vaccine, rather than maybe banging them on the head with stats uh, or scientific papers, you maybe first want to establish how much you care for that person, what that person means to you in their life why you understand their fears about the vaccine or the fears about an injection or a needle. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of scientific research done on this issue of perspective taking, of putting yourself in the shoes of others in order to try and convince them, hearing them out, even no matter how uh, repulsed you might be by their position. And for example, in the realm of transgender rights, a study was done by scientists, I think at the University of Berkeley, where uh, they went on the doorstep uh, and spent 10 minutes of listening and engaging with people who had all sorts of kind of anti-trans or whatever you want to call it, prejudiced views, opposing views, skeptical views. And that had the effect of changing that person's opinions for up to three months, a 10 minute deep conversation, what's called deep canvassing at the doorstep. So mm -hmm. there are strategies and I talk about in the book about empathetic listening. I talk yeah. about the uh, storytelling, personal anecdote. The way you convince your uncle at the Thanksgiving table is by talking in a personal sense, not in an abstract sense. You do talk about how emotion beats logic every time. And I think the strategies that you're getting at is really appealing to people on that level. Curious if you thought about why emotion beats logic every it, time. Because because as, as the great Dale Carnegie once said, we are not human beings are not creatures of logic. We are creatures of emotion. That is how uh, the, I, I cite the work of Antonio Damasio, who is at uh, California, University of California, neuroscientist who's done a lot of research on the brain and emotion. And he makes the point that we're not thinking machines and we're not feeling machines, but we are feeling machines that think. And often when we make a decision, we are guided to that. We think we've made that decision based on weighing up the evidence rationally through some Socratic dialogue and evidence-based research. And the reality is most human beings do not form opinions in that way. We come to decisions, often snap judgments, instinctive decisions, based on feeling our way uh, towards that conclusion, not thinking our way towards that conclusion. And the human brain is designed to light up when it's emotionally engaged with things like storytelling. And I like the research of Nia Hassan, no relation at Princeton, who has done uh, fMRI scans of the brain and found that when somebody tells another person's story, both the listener of the story and the teller of the story, their brains are in sync at that moment. He calls it brain-to-brain -brain coupling. So there's a lot of science behind how emotionally engaged we are with each other and with messages that we receive that are personal, not abstract, that are concrete and specific, and that do engage us in the form of narrative. Going back thousands of years to when we were in caves, 
man has been attracted by narrative, by a beginning, a middle, and an end, a solid story arc. And that's why I say if you start a speech, end a speech, start an argument, end an argument, start it with a story, end it with a story, because the human brain is actually hardwired for stories, not for statistics. We're talking about the art of debate and public speaking with my guest, Mehdi Hassan. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. So curious if there's a debate you often have with friends or family that you're still trying to win and you'd like to ask Mehdi about it. Or maybe you can talk about the strategies that you have used to win arguments and whether you like them or whether engaging in debate is something you run from these days and why you can email forum at kqed.org find us on twitter facebook or instagram at kqed forum or give us a call at 866-733-6786 866-733-6786 or simply what do you want to ask midi hassan uh midi i want to ask you about something you said earlier about good faith debate can you define what you mean by good faith uh, that is a great question. And it's very, actually, very hard to pin down. And I often use the, you know, the famous Supreme or the infamous Supreme Court definition of pornography, which is, you know, it when you see it, uh, good faith and bad faith debates, we all kind of know when the person we're up against isn't really interested in having a conversation that leads to a productive outcome, or even having a conversation that's based on facts and figures. So I would say there are many different telltale signs. For example, the person who constantly shifts the goalposts when you're in a discussion, that person doesn't really want to have a good faith conversation. The person who makes outrageously um, provocative claims with zero evidence and not just doesn't provide any evidence, but doesn't think evidence is important. Or the person who's trying to bully or intimidate or threaten you into a conclusion. Those are people who are not arguing in good faith based on someone who wants to actually get uh, to a conclusion that everyone can agree on. So I think distinguishing between good and bad faith is vital. Hmm. You are, I hate to say it, really making me think of a single person that I'm going to ask you about after the break <laughs> when you are describing someone who uses those kinds of tactics and does not engage in good faith debate. We'll talk more with Mehdi Hassan, journalist and host of the Mehdi Hassan Show on MSNBC and Peacock about his new book, Win Every Argument. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what's on tomorrow. We're going to talk with actor Randall Park. He's directed a new movie that's about bad people going against the usual affable roles he plays. Today, we're talking with Mehdi Hassan, whose goal, in his words, is to turn you, no matter your background or ability, into a champion of debate, a master of rhetoric, a winner in the art 
of argument. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786, emailing forum at kqed.org, or finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Let me go to Greg in Oakland. Hi, Greg. You're on. Hi. How are you? Well, what's on your mind? Excellent. Excellent. Hi, Mehdi. I just wanted to say thank you for your shows. I'm so glad I can get them on YouTube because I'm broke. And I really enjoy listening to you. What I wanted to ask you is, do you have any advice for people who are really excellent arguers? I'm an excellent arguer, and I find out I find that I sometimes wear people down, or I, I come off as too enthusiastic, and I make people feel defensive, or, or like I'm not respecting their argument. Have mm-hmm. you got any advice for me? It's funny. It sounds like you're, sounds like you're describing me as well, Greg. I've had those problems <laughs> as well for, since I was a very young person. Um, my wife still tells me I have those issues now. I think uh, the chapter in the book that's for you then is the chapter on listening because th- those of us who love to argue, we get so carried away in making our points that we don't stop to engage with the other side. And that's important for two reasons because you need to be a critical listener. If you're going to be a good arguer, you need to be able to hear what the other person is saying. If you're going to knock down their arguments, you need to hear them first. And you need to be an empathetic listener. If you're trying to win over a neutral audience, you need to make clear that you understand what skepticism or criticisms or genuine queries they may have. So I think working on listening, which is the fifth chapter of my book, is very, very important for those of us who love to talk a lot and argue a lot. So dealing with what we talked about just before the break, somebody who's captured by misinfo is one thing, but I really want to talk to you about how you hold a powerful public figure who who may be in the position of spreading that disinformation or conspiracies or so on. And I mentioned that I was thinking of someone when you were describing a person (laughs) who doesn't engage in good faith arguments. And of course, that person is Donald Trump, who may become much more on the scene uh, as we approach a presidential election in 2024. First of all, I'd love to know if you could interview former President Donald Trump, how would you go about it? It's a great question. I get asked it a lot. And I would say, um, well, first of all, a Donald Trump interview would not last very long because he would get up and leave after my kind of first or second question. And he has a habit of uh, kind of ending interviews quickly that he realizes aren't going his way. I remember, I think he had John Dickerson of CBS once kind of manhandled out of the Oval Office and he walked down on a BBC journalist prior to becoming president. Um, uh, it's a couple of things. One is... Uh, yeah, I talk about this in the book. There's a chapter called Beware the Gish Galloper, and it's about people who try and steamroll you with not just misinformation, but one lie, one deflection, one BS talking point after another. And they throw them at you so quickly, uh, back to back, you know, uh, at such speed that you're unable to rebut them all. And that's what Donald Trump has done in presidential debates. That's what he's done in TV interviews. You know, by the time you started rebutting his fourth lie, he's on to his 17th lie. By the time you've got to his 17th lie, he's on lie number 34. And I think it's a a very useful, if uh, cynical, trick. And I have a chapter in the book about how do you push back against that? And it's almost kind of advice for some of my fellow interviewers as well in, in the media business, which is, you got to pick number one. You got to pick your battle, meaning you got to. You can't respond to 120 Trump lies. So, okay, forget 119 of them. Just go after one. <laughs> pick one, the, the, the most ridiculous, evidence-free one. Knock that one down. Show the audience how ludicrous that one is, so that they can understand that the other 119 probably ain't so great either. Number two, don't budge. 
we have to, you know, this is an interview. I mean, the follow-up question is more important than the original yeah. question. You put a question and a Donald Trump type person dodges it or says some nonsense. You do not move on to your next question, your next topic. You go back and you say, that's not what I asked you. You go back and you say, you didn't answer the question. You go back and you say, I'm going to fact check that answer. It's wrong. And a lot of people like Trump, they're relying on the interviewer having an ad break to go to, having another topic to go mm -hmm. to. And you, my position is don't budge, less is more. I refuse to move on is, is kind of one of my mottos. And number three, you call it out. You have to call out the strategy itself. Make it clear to your audience what is going on here, that this entire strategy is about disorientation. It's about, to quote Steve Bannon himself, former Trump advisor, it's about flooding the zone with excrement, as he put it in a famous interview. Um, it's about kind of overwhelming you with BS. So those are the three things I would say. But just on a, on, a, on a side note, if I ever did sit down with Donald Trump, I probably wouldn't do some elaborate interview into, you know, the insurrection and his incitement to violence and his affinity for white supremacy. I would probably just ask him fact questions. I'm not, I'm not sure why interviews have never just asked Donald Trump fact questions. Mr. Trump, what does NATO stand for? What is the WHO? When was your last trip to Wakanda? I would just like to ask him fact questions and see where that goes. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, though, I would love to watch that interview if it were to happen. But as you're saying, he would either walk out or you would never get the chance to because because of your reputation of being a tough interview, because you're sitting here and giving us advice about how we should go about it if we are interviewing Donald Trump. Yeah. And I guess, how do you manage the reputation of being a hard-hitting interviewer and getting the interviewee's you want the ones who do yeah. really do need to be held to account? Uh, it's a great question. And it's one my team and I wrestle with all the time. And when I was at Al Jazeera English prior to joining NBC in 2020, it was easier to get a lot of these, especially uh, Republican Gish Galloper types on the show, because a lot of people didn't know much about Al Jazeera English. They didn't know much about this British brown dude who'd moved to the US only a couple of years earlier. So kind of my relative anonymity actually helped me in some of the bookings, as did being at Al Jazeera English. Obviously, when you're MSNBC, uh, a lot of people who I would love to interview might want to stay away from, you know, oh, a channel that's politics we don't share, or an interviewer who's now known, kind of, you know, people know me from the viral clips. Um, and it is, it has become more difficult. Um, but that's not to say it's impossible. We've had some great uh, combative interviews on the show. People like John Bolton appeared on my show, which I was surprised he did it. Uh, Dan Crenshaw and I had a very viral exchange not long ago, about a year or so ago, about uh, the border. Um, when we, he and I had a Twitter exchange, which turned into a TV exchange. It is difficult, no doubt about it, especially in an age where, you know, if you are, a, a, especially a Republican politician, you can go into your safe space of Newsmax or Fox and not have to take any tough questions. Fox yes. used to at least have Chris Wallace, who asked tough questions. He's no longer at Fox. He's now at CNN. So really, it's a, it's a complete safe space for conservative politicians. But it, it does become tough. Having said that, people, there are still a fair few people who do like an argument, who just like the idea of a row. And a lot of people, let's be honest, in public life, and, uh, you know, I say this as a journalist, I'm not, I'm not excusing my profession but you know especially in the political profession a lot of people are very pleased with themselves so it doesn't matter what my reputation is they think well he's not going to get me well if you are able to get them by appealing to that side of their ego i guess the other thought that i've been having is when you do reveal through your questioning discrepancies or hypocrisies or lies that they yeah. might have been making do you feel like they're able to land the way that maybe they would have 10, 
15 years ago, are they able to make a real dent in the divided America that we have now, where, as you were just describing, there's this whole other entity, an echo chamber you could go to to retreat or be affirmed? I think it depends who and where. I think, yes, you're right. As as a rule of thumb, it's definitely become much harder in a crowded media space with social media amplification of of nonsense and lots of safe spaces become much harder to get that water cooler moment where everyone saw the night before someone getting completely grilled. I mean, Jonathan Swan managed to cut through with his famous Donald Trump interview for Axios in 2020, where he really held Trump's feet to the fire, probably the most effective interview of Donald Trump that I've seen on American television. But those are rare moments that kind of break through and a lot of people see them. Right now, I mean, you have a story related to Fox, for example, where mm-hmm. we have Rupert Murdoch's deposition, where he's basically admitting that the channel was following the money and fearful of rivals and carrying on endorsing or at least amplifying the big lie. You've got texts from Fox hosts saying different things to each other in private than what they were saying to their viewers. And they say, wow, that's bad for Fox. And they say, is it bad for Fox? Because Fox viewers have no clue about this story. They're not talking about it on Fox. From their media diet, they don't know this is happening. So you're right. It's much harder to cut through a lot of the noise and get through to people these days because we're so polarized and segmented, especially in our media consumption. Having said that, I, you know, I still believe that if you can hold people to account, if you can, if you can ask questions that need to be asked, there's value in that for multiple reasons. Number one, as I say, The process itself has value. Truth-seeking has value. Uh, I strongly believe that. Number two, um, even if you're not convincing the other side, it's important to show, quote unquote, your side, whatever that side is, I would call it the pro-reality, pro-democracy side, that facts still matter and that the rea- this is the reality. It's my job as a journalist not just to uh, you know, entertain, but inform and educate. And I think that, again, has intrinsic value in and of itself. And the third point is actually you can do, you can hold people to account and, and make change. I remember my interview with Eric Prince. That, that's how most Americans first discovered me when I was at zero English, which went viral, but also not just viral, but, you know, it ended up Adam Schiff and the House Intelligence Committee at the time referring him to the DOJ for further investigation of possible perjury. You know, there are moments when you do interviews, wow, okay, that has an impact. When you see, uh, you know, over in the UK, I just think of Emily Maitlis's interview of Prince Andrew, which has basically destroyed Prince Andrew's reputation forever. Um, There there are interviews that cut through the noise. No, you know, we're not going to get Nixon Frost moments all the time. But then again, Nixon Frost itself, even in that era stood out. We're talking about the art of debate and public speaking and why it matters and why maybe Hassan thinks we all need to get better at it. It's relationship to a functioning democracy. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Let me go next to Chris in Oakland. Hi, Chris, you're on. Hi. Um, I feel like for me personally, my, my biggest challenge in arguments uh, is feeling angry, getting angry, especially when the person I'm arguing with is, is using uh, bad faith tactics. Um, I feel like I get frustrated, and then I may even resort to bad faith tactics myself. Uh, I wanted to know, is what, what are ways, what, like, how do you channel anger in an argument, and how do you avoid pitfalls of, like, uh, that, that, uh, that uh, end up shutting down the argument or making it kind of devolve into... Uh, a screaming yeah. match. 
It's such a great question. Again, something that applies to me, like the previous question. I'm someone <laughs> who gets very worked up. You know, my friends of mine, when I was in college, used to be saying, like, you'll be dead from an ulcer by the time you're 30. You get worked up about everything. Like, what ice cream flavor? We're ordering at a restaurant. You get argued about that as well. So I do get very worked up. I get as frustrated as you do about bad faith arguments and people kind of dodging my questions. So that's why I, I kind of did something unorthodox. And in the book, I included in the last third of the book where I talk about what you should be doing behind the scenes to prepare for a debate or an argument or a speech or an interview. Uh, the 13th chapter of the book is called Keep Calm and Carry On. And it's about the importance of staying cool and collected, because once you lose your calm, you're unable to use any of the tricks, techniques, fundamentals of debate and public speech and rhetoric that I outline in the rest of the book. In order to do all the other stuff, you have to stay calm. And some of the techniques I talk about in the book is working on your breathing, uh, basic stuff like controlling your breathing, staying calm, uh, taking a deep breath, even in the middle of a heated debate. I talk about the importance. I talk, uh, in every chapter, I have a rule of three. I, I have a chapter on the rule of three, but I also deploy three everywhere. So I have three tips to stay calm. I say, you got to work on your breathing. I think you got to work on laughter. You, you know, humor is the best way to diffuse a volatile situation. If you're worked up about something, make a joke about it. Be self-deprecating. Even make a joke at your opponent's expense. Better than losing your cool. Um, scientific studies show how important humor is for staying calm. And the third point is self-talk, um, which is basically that voice in your head. You know, you've got to be able to talk to yourself and not just talk to yourself, talk to yourself in the third person. A University of Michigan study found that the most effective way of staying calm is actually self-talk in the third person. So I joke with friends and I say, if you think, you know, if you see me in a debate, you see me on live TV on MSNBC on Sunday night, know that I'm talking to myself as I'm doing the show. I'm saying, Mehdi, keep calm. You got this. You can do this. And I think we should all be working on that side of our personalities, not just in debate and speech, but across the board, because it's such an invaluable skill. The ability to stay calm under pressure is something that can help you across the board in life. The book is Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. We've got this question from a listener who writes, if everyone reads the book, who will win the arguments? <laughs> um, uh, somebody else asked that question, and I saw a response with the Spider-Man meme. Have you seen the, the cartoon of all the three <laughs> Spider-Man pointing at each other? Yes, uh, yes. Three people with my book. Um, well, actually, here's, here's a very straightforward answer. If, if three people get together and buy my book, and I'm hoping more than three listeners today will go away and buy the book. But if they buy the book and they read the 16 chapters in the book, 16 different kind of tips, uh, pieces of advice in the book. And I would say the person who's going to win the argument if everyone reads the book is the person who focuses on chapters 14 and 15, which are called Practice Makes Perfect and Do Your Homework. Again, sounds like the Department of Bleeding Obvious, but the number of people who get into a debate or a row or an argument or take a position in public without thinking it through, without going through all of the arguments on both sides, without knowing their opponent's argument as well as they know their own arguments, without having practiced their delivery in front of a mirror or on camera, without having... Uh, thought about what tone of voice to use for the relevant audience that's going to be in front of them without having done their homework on the audience. Who's the people I'm going to be speaking to? That That is going to affect who's going to come out on top. I cannot stress enough the importance of preparation of practice. All of the great speakers through history put so much emphasis on this. We, we think about public speakers as some kind of natural born orators. I hate that phrase because yes, some people are born with you know a certain level of skill and elocution, but everyone has to work at it. And some of the great orators were actually awful orators when they were younger. I give the example of Winston Churchill in his 20s, losing, his, losing the place in his speech and unable to finish a sentence in the House of Commons and being, being uh, heckled by all of the members of parliament in the, in the UK House of Commons and 
vowing for that never to happen to him again and going away and spending so much time practicing even in his own bathtub so that he becomes the man we remember him the guy from world war ii the guy from fight them on the beaches the great orator so i would say yes everyone read the book everyone pick up the tips and techniques some of these are tried and tested techniques going back to aristotle and cicero but also it's not enough just to read and absorb it You've got to put in the time. You've got to put in the legwork. Abraham Lincoln, before he gives the Gettysburg Address, he calls the guy, uh, he calls the uh, the guy with the plans to the cemetery so that he can see where everything is, where he's going to stand, where the crowd are going to be standing. Because Abe liked to put the time in, liked to put the hours in before he delivered his amazing speeches. Well, we're getting a couple of questions along these lines that I'd love to get your thoughts on. For example, Matthew writes, I participated in a decade-long dialogue among Native and Western scientists. One of our ground rules was to suspend our usual assumptions so we could learn something new. Isn't it key to productive conversations to hold our own assumptions lightly? This seems antithetical to the idea of getting someone else to arrive at our own true position. Another one, kind of along these lines, the listener writes, I don't think trying to win all arguments is necessarily a moral goal. It makes you incapable of changing your mind. This prosecutorial approach means whoever has the best gotcha wins, even if later on people can check and find counter arguments to that gotcha. What do you think about those questions around, should we be trying to win every argument or or does winning mean, I don't know, yeah, we all feel good at the end? Simple answer, no. I mean, the second question you put is, a few people have made that point and I have to kind of disabuse them of that notion that I'm saying there's a moral case for winning every argument. That's not what I'm saying at all. This is a very practical book. This is a book that tells you how to win every argument should you choose to engage in that argument, should you need to win that argument. Sometimes we forget, a lot of people need to win an argument. It's not a choice. Some people are like, oh, I don't like arguing. I avoid it. Well, if you're a prosecutor in court who needs to put the alleged murderer behind bars that you believe is a murderer, you need to convince that jury to get on board with your prosecution argument. It's not a, It's not something that, oh, well, actually, you know, why don't me and the murderer sit down and have a kind of conversation, see if we can find some common? No, you have to win that argument. If you're trying to get a job and you're trying to persuade somebody to give you a job that you need to pay the bills, you have to win that debate that discussion, make the case, convince that person. So in many cases, you have to do it, but I'm not saying you should do it in every case. Of course not. And the, the title says, win every argument. Should you choose to do it? Is there, is there, so if I wrote a book called Drive Every Car, I'm not telling everyone to go out and drive every car. I'm saying, here's how you could drive every car if you wanted to. Here are the skill set you need, should you choose to drive a multiplicity of cars. So no, I'm not making any kind of moral case. In fact, I say in the front page, I say, uh, you know, this is for my wife who uh, I can't seem to ever beat in any argument. And I would argue <laughs> you, probably, you probably shouldn't want to win an argument with your spouse. That's somebody you should probably avoid arguing with uh, most of the time. Yeah, good, good advice, Mehdi Hassan. And we'll have more with Mehdi after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Bina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Mehdi Hassan this hour. You probably know him from the Mehdi Hassan show on MSNBC and Peacock, where he's known for his hard-hitting interviews of people in power. He's got a new book called Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Let me go next to Cheryl in Alameda. Hi, Cheryl. You're on. Hi there. Uh, Thank you for this discussion. I will definitely be buying this book. A few moments ago, you talked about who wins if more than one person reads this book. And my take on that is if we all read this book and we all come into this conversation with the spirit of listening, giving our opinions and learning, then everyone wins because we all are more informed. Well, thanks for that, Cheryl. I I think it underscores what I hear as your point earlier, Mitty, where engaging in argument in many ways, you're you're asking us to become better critical thinkers um, as well, and and why that's so important to a functioning democracy. (laughs) Well, first of all, you're my favorite listener because you're going to go by the book. So obviously, (laughs) you're my favorite on book publication week. But critical thinking is such a good point. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about you know, for example, we talk about straw manning of arguments. It's something we do. We we take our opponent's worth argument and we make it sound bad. We we argue with the weakest version of it. And I say in the book, try steel manning your opponent's argument, not just as a way to win, but again, to critically think around your own arguments. Come up with the strongest version, strongest possible version of your opponent's position or the other side and debate that because it'll make you much better think it, it'll make you much better debate it, and it'll open your own mind, which is so crucially important because too often we just know our own positions. And, you know, the, the quote that guides me throughout the book and throughout my life is John Stuart Mill from On Liberty, where he says, you cannot know your own side of the argument if you only know. You cannot know the argument if you only know the own side of the argument. You have to know the other side as well. You have to know the most plausible version of the other side. It's not enough just to be able to refute the other side um, if, if people can also refute yours. So you need to know both sides of the argument, no matter, no matter where you stand. And yes, something I've done my entire life that brought me to where I am today is, I try and read around everything. I don't just read uh, things I agree with. I read things I disagree with. I don't just listen to people I agree with. I listen to people I disagree with because I want to be able to understand where everyone's coming from, even if it's even if it's eventually to try and debate against that position. Um, so I do talk about in the book about the importance of opening up your mind and about critical listening skills and critical thinking skills. Um, and I do, just to come back to the, the questioner's point about if everyone does this, my worry is right now, is that we are living in a political environment where public discourse is being so degraded and people are behaving in such a kind of thuggish and intimidating manner. A lot of people don't want to speak up. A lot of people are saying, I'll just keep my head down. I'll just keep my opinions to myself. And that is not healthy for democracy. That's not healthy for individual human beings, to be honest. And I'm encouraging people to say, you know what? No, express yourself. Say your piece. It's healthy for a democracy. Let me help you how to best express yourself and how to take on the bad faith merchants and the gaslighters and the grifters. But Mitty, you do have your boundaries. For example, you won't go on Fox. Uh, You won't have election deniers and climate deniers on your show. Why won't you go on Fox? Why won't you engage in those debates? 
But so, so two slightly different answers to two slightly different questions. Let's just deal with the Fox position first. I don't go on Fox because Fox is not a news channel and I refuse to treat them as a news channel or a journalistic enterprise. I refuse to call it Fox News on my show. And I would argue over the last couple of weeks, I've been vindicated by Fox themselves. We've seen from the Dominion lawsuit, we've seen Fox hosts saying to each other in private the exact opposite about the election that they were saying in public. We've seen Rupert Murdoch say, yeah, I had Mike Lindell, the, my pillow conspiracy theorist guy on air, because it's not about red and blue, it's about green. It's about making money, even if they show contempt for the voters. We've seen the text from Rupert Murdoch or email where he says, Sean Hannity is disgusted with Trump, but he's scared of his viewers. Um, so I say that is not a news enterprise. That is not a journalistic enterprise. It's a channel that nowadays it's always been a right wing channel but it's in a different league now now it pumps out white supremacist propaganda at nighttime tucker carlson pushes the great replacement theory which until recently no respectable person would echo but now it's becoming very popular on the far right this neo-nazi talking point about bringing in immigrants to replace white natives no i won't go on and kind of bless such a channel people say well you you get a bigger audience if you do that's why democrats should go on fox like Buttigieg and bernie i say you know what where's that you know that's a slippery slope you're gonna go on Infowars too alex jones has a big audience why not go on Infowars? So it's a, it's a hygiene test. And the same applies to your question about why not have election deniers on my show. There are some arguments you shouldn't have. If I wrote a sequel to this book, I would focus on that. Which argument should you walk away from? Yeah. Because you shouldn't, to go back to your earlier question, you shouldn't have every argument. I'm not saying you should have every argument. I'm saying uh, some arguments are not worth having because the person is arguing in such bad faith. Why would I want to give Marjorie Taylor Greene a live platform on my show to spew absolute nonsense that she almost certainly doesn't even believe herself, um, which is impossible to fact check in real time. Uh, what, what is, how is that a productive discussion? What is being gained from that? Where is the good faith agreement and disagreement? So no, election deniers, climate deniers, Holocaust deniers. I'm not going to, I'll debate a lot of things. I'm not going to debate reality. I'm not going to argue up is down, black is white, hot is cold. As clear as you are about that, though... <laughs> Have you ever considered revisiting it? Have you ever talked with your producers and said, gosh, this is taking over so much. Yeah. Is it, should we, you know? Yes. Uh, that, that's, such, that's the, that's one journalist to another. What a great question. It's, you know, you know exactly what's going on on teams like mine. We do to have those conversations because it's easy for me to take this principled purist stance, but I also live in the real world. And in the real world, if one political party is so dominated by this, for example, election denialism. When I say I'm not gonna have an election denial on my show, I'm basically saying I'm not gonna have any, almost anyone from the Republican party on my show. And that's a difficult position to take in a two-party democracy with a presidential election coming up next year. So will I have to revisit this? Will I have to kind of, you know, accept, you know what, I'm gonna have to drop this rule uh, because I simply want, I need to be able to interview people in the Republican party. Uh, it, I owe it to my viewers. Maybe, maybe I'll get to that point where I'll have to do it. I'll be depressed and frustrated to do it. I wish I didn't have to do it. Let's see what it comes to. Right now, I feel comfortable saying I don't want to give precious airtime to conspiracy theorists and loons. This listener writes, the topic my husband and I fight about the most is climate change. To me, there is overwhelming scientific evidence that it is caused by human activities, such as burning of fossil fuels. To him, the climate has always been changing and humans are not affecting it. I have tried to explain to him that the effects we're seeing we're seeing now are off the charts compared to the changes that we've seen over geological time, but he refuses logic, and I don't know how this topic can be addressed by appealing to emotions. Another listener, Kristen, writes, I love a good debate, but so far what I'm hearing assumes you're always right. I wonder what experience Mr. Hassan has had realizing in the middle of an argument that he might in fact be wrong. 
Or has yes. he had debates where he's had his opinion changed? How, is there a debate that you quote unquote lost? Uh, uh, I know that there are debates that I've lost. Um, uh, just dealing with that last point first. First of all, during a debate, realizing you're wrong, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I talk about in the book in a chapter called Judo Moves, which is about kind of rhetorical moves you can use to save yourself. I talk about the importance of conceding, and partly it's a tactical move. To concede is to show that you are flexible, you are, uh, you're not a kind of rigid ideologue, you're open-minded. So there's a kind of cynical reason to concede, but there's also just an honest reason to concede. I sometimes think, why do people kind of tie themselves in not doubling down on something you know you're wrong? You don't have to kind of be right on every issue, even to make your broader argument. So I'm happy to concede things when I'm wrong. I'm happy to kind of, I, you know, I've, I've written about, for example, how wrong I was about Joe Biden. I had a very, very different view of Joe Biden in the primaries than I do today. I still have many criticisms of the president, but he's certainly done better than I thought he would do. He certainly turned out to be a very different president. So in those debates over Joe Biden, I can go revisit them and say I was wrong at the time. I'm not, I'm not ashamed for having them. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed that I asked the provocative questions about Biden because again, I believe in the, in the debate. Um, but to go back to the climate change point, um, it's a really tricky one, climate change. It's one of those ones where it's become an identity issue. And so throwing around scientific papers only goes so far because it's like guns, for example. It's not about, you know, we can talk about how many, you know, how many how, compared to how many people die in America compared to other countries, et cetera, et cetera. But it's become a kind of identity, a marker of who you are, what tribe you're in, what camp you're in. And unfortunately, climate change has become like, just like masks. You know, during the pandemic, masks and vaccines, which are kind of scientific tools, shouldn't have become kind of political markers, but they did because one side politicized and weaponized a public health crisis. Same with the climate crisis. I would say, I mean, it's very different if you're arguing with your spouse. I'm not going to give, I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not going to give advice on how you should best approach your partner. But in general, if you're talking about climate change, I think you have to do the same thing. The same rules apply. You have to storytell. If I'm going to, if I want to talk about climate change, I'm going to start off by telling you a story about a family who lost everything because of a climate change induced disaster. I'm gonna to talk to you about climate refugees and the number of people who've had to flee their homes. I'm gonna tell you a story about um, uh, animals, cute and cuddly animals who are dying out because of climate change. And I'm going to make you want to get upset about what is happening and take it seriously on an emotional and personal level. Then I'll start deploying my peer-reviewed research and IPCC reports. But first, I'm going to get you to come with me and care about what I care about. Let me go to caller Stewart in San Francisco. Hi, Stuart. You're on with Mitty. Hi. Uh, I love this discussion. I just wanted to comment about debate and argumentation as a life skill. I grew up from an early age listening to the Argument Clinic by Monty Python, so it was no surprise yes. that I spent all four years of <laughs> high school in uh, debate tournaments every weekend. Uh, I loved high school debate. But people would ask me, why are you doing this? What is the practical application in your life of doing cross-examination every weekend? Um, but flash forward a few decades, my husband and I became plaintiffs in a landmark marriage equality case. And, you know, wow. the plaintiffs, it wasn't just about the lawsuit, but it was all the things that you described uh, at the top of the hour about trans rights and those conversations. We had to talk in sound bites. We had to lead rallies. We had to be interviewed on live TV. We had to write press releases. We had to have those heartfelt conversations. And we, yes, we actually had to debate our opponents. And I realized, where did I learn any of these skills? It was on my debate team in high school. And not only did we win in the court of law, but I think we also won in the court of public opinion. Um, yes. Thanks to that combination of facts and like heartfelt personal stories. Hmm. 
Stuart. It's so funny. It's so funny when people say, you know, how will this help you? Like, I was a kid in school who sat in math class saying, why will I ever need to know about quadratic equations? How will it help me in life? And you know what? I don't want to put off any kids listening, but I was vindicated. I've never needed to know about quadratic equations. <laughs> but as your caller just pointed out, the stuff you learned about public speaking and debate, that's helped you in every walk of life. And there's no one who doesn't have to go to a job interview. There's no one that doesn't have to try and convince a family member or a spouse or a child to come on board with their way of thinking. There's no one that doesn't at some point in their life have to speak in front of a crowd. And we know that Americans would rather, you know, at a funeral, according to the polling, people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, to quote Jerry Seinfeld. That's because people are, that's how afraid people are public speaking that dying uh, is not is, is a secondary fear. So these are really, really important life skills, soft skills, career skills uh, that I am evangelizing about. It's not just, oh, well, I'm never going to be on TV arguing with a politician like Mehdi does. It doesn't matter. You're going to be in a situation where you need to convince and persuade. And I'm saying, let me show you how. We're talking with Mehdi Hassan. His book is Win Every Argument, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Can you talk a little bit about the differences that you have observed in the U.S. when it comes to people's style of arguing? But I think you've also pointed out the arguing avoidance that you see. Mm. Uh, you also see it on the media level with regard to, to interviewers, you know, being reluctant to really go after people. And even when they do, they get criticized, and yes. especially, you know depending on who they are. A lot of times if they're a woman or a person of color, they get criticized if they were trying to take down somebody of power or a person of power or a yes. white person as well. So anyway, I'm curious about the differences that you have observed having grown up in the UK and, and of course now having lived here for the last nearly 10 years or so. So the British media is, when it comes to TV interviewing in particular, much less deferential and much more combative and confrontational than the American media. That's very clear if you watch. I grew up watching people like Jeremy Paxman and John Humphreys. If you watch today, people like Andrew Neil in the UK, Emily Maitlis. Um, and, you know... Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that I have a tougher style than a lot of my American colleagues. I think it's I'm a British American now, and I think it's the British side of me that's uh, contributing to that. I, I do think that... Um, you know, this idea that we should kind of back away from confrontation is a little bit of an American position, which is, it's rude. You can't say that. And you see it, you see it and hear it in an interviewer's tone. Well, oh, I can't go there. Uh, that would be rude. And, and, and viewers sometimes say, well, well, they shouldn't have gone there. And it's, yeah. it's, I remember interview, so last night I was in Washington, D.C. at Politics and Bros doing a book event, doing a book signing when Jen Psaki, who's my new MSNBC colleague, former White House press secretary, was doing the conversation with me. And I reminded her that when she came on the 11th hour while I was guest hosting after Brian Williams re uh, retired and they were looking for another host and I was guest hosting the show, I, I grilled her on the show. She was she was at the White House. I really pushed her. I can't remember what topic on, maybe on COVID. And I got some furious responses from her fans on social media. How dare you interrupt her? Like, why did you not show respect to her? Brian Williams would never have treated a guest like that. And I was like, thinking to myself... How curious. This is my job. It is my job to hold power to account. It is not my job to be the guest's best friend. And maybe that's the British person to me that we, we, you know, we're British. We come across as a little bit ruder and in your face. And maybe you need a little bit more of that in the American media right now. Yeah, I, I do think that it also plays a role in terms of who are you accountable to? And, and I think what the answer often is, is it's to the audience, right? It's not to the guest right. that you have on necessarily. Exactly. And and I guess if that drives your pursuit, 
And more, actually, I would, I would, I would add to that, Mina, and say it's to the audience to an extent, but above all else, it's to truth. Mm. It's to facts and reality. It's why sometimes I don't mind upsetting my audience. I don't care if my audience think, well, that was wrong, because my point is not to kind of appease or win points or just, you know, uh, give pleasure to the audience at home by, you know, dunking on the people they don't like and being soft, softballs to the people they do. My job is to kind of go where the facts lead me, stick to the truth, and ask uncomfortable questions to people in power, whether they're whether they're blue or red. No. Well, Amy writes, I'm argument avoidant, although I like a good discussion. I really have no tolerance for someone who's an aggressive arguer determined to be heard and to win, especially mansplainers. I think it would be fun to give this book to one of those individuals so they can read that chapter on how to listen. Uh, Laura writes, I have a 12-year-old son that wants to win every argument. This is core to his personality. I want him to retain that passion and love of debate, but become less annoying <laughs> so we can all have a better time around him and have him become a balanced adult. What advice do you have for us parents? And you are a parent, right, Mitty? I'm a parent. I'm a parent with two daughters who love to debate. My my, well, my older daughter is in high school debate. My younger daughter is about to take over the world and become president and prime minister of the UK and <laughs> US at the same time. Um <laughs> I mean, one thing you could do to go back to an earlier call and to go back to my own kids' experience is put your kid in high school debates so they have an outlet. I mean, one of sometimes as someone who spent his time being thrown out of class in school because I wouldn't put my hand up, I'd just blurt out the answer or shout out my opinion. I spent a lot of time standing in the hallway or in the principal's office. Um, I would say, you know, I needed to find an outlet. I found that when I got to college and I started debating much more. And you need to find outlets, whether it's acting in a school play, uh, debating in a debate, taking public speaking classes. Some of us just need a place to put that energy and enthusiasm rather than as your as your um, as your listener says, we, you don't want to get rid of that kid's energy and enthusiasm and and like and passion for argument and debate because it will help them in life. I guarantee it. But yes, how do you best channel it? Can you find the right hobbies? Can you find the best outlets? And of course, doing it in a way. I mean, all these words, it's interesting the words that are thrown around, aggressive, rude, challenging. Mm -hmm. I did an interview earlier today where the interviewer said, I don't really like your, you know, suggested they didn't really like my style because they thought it was too aggressive. And I, But some, it depends on the context. Yeah, of course, if you're sitting around a dinner table with friends and they say something you don't agree with, don't bite their head off. Of course not. But if you're sitting as I have with like John Bolton, who's trying to defend the Iraq war and the killing of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, yeah, I'm going to be a bit aggressive. and I'm not going to apologize for that. Well, one of the things that I I love, we, we are right at the end of the hour, but you do point out how just um, a little bit of humor <laughs> can make, yeah. can really disarm somebody, but also make you seem a little less, quote unquote, aggressive. And I do put that in quotes. Well, Mitty, it's really been a pleasure talking with you because you've also made me laugh. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It was great. Mehdi Hassan. The book, Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. You can also catch him on NBC, on MSNBC, on The Mehdi Hassan Show. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your experiences and questions. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.